Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And from the border of liberty and prosperity in the highway to the north, this is Safety Wars, our last program of the year. Friday, December 29th, 2023. How's everybody doing out there? I know I am missing something. I'm missing my head. How's everybody doing out there tonight? Waiting for the streamers to catch up here. Anyway, if it were not technical difficulties, we wouldn't have any difficulties at all. That was meant as a joke. So we are starting out tonight on a somber note. Here. Last Friday, I should say last uh, Saturday morning, right? I am, everyone here knows I am an avid coast to coast listener. So last Saturday morning, I was uh, on uh, coast, uh, I was listening to Coast to Coast AM on their uh, podcast, and you know, it's a paid podcast. And the And the host, and this is a little bit hard for me, the host, uh, George Nori, said I had some pretty bad news for everybody here. The uh, uh, host, Ian Punnett, who nobody has really heard from in two months, roughly, uh, on the show, uh, passed away. And you're going to say, well, Jim, why are you mentioning this? It's because he was instrumental in inspiring this program, at least. And you're going to say, well, in what way? In January of 2021, right during the height of the pandemic, was it then? Yeah, 2021. We... I was in talks with Jay Allen uh, as to whether or not we should uh, have a podcast. That's when we were just doing the once a week or twice a week deal and you know, getting our feet wet and everything else. And now we're, well, should I do it? Should I, shouldn't I do it? This and that. And as Coast to Coast AM is a call-in program, was one night a caller called in and the caller was one of those people who, in talk radio, likes to monopolize things. I mean, completely and totally monopolize things. And what ended up happening was, Ian said, look, you're very knowledgeable. And he, and he was very kind. He could be tough when he wanted to be, when he needed to be. But he was like, look, he had to take control back of his own show said, you have enough information that you should have your own show. You have enough thoughts here that you can have a 15-minute, 20-minute podcast, I think is what he said. You can have your own podcast with all this information and everything else. Why don't you think about doing it with that rather than calling in shows and then monopolizing them for 15 minutes uh, on the phone call and you can't get the person off? And I was listening, and I said, you know what? That's me. 
here. Not that I call in uh, talk radio shows that often. Uh, to say I never did it would be an absolute and total lie. Uh, but in reality, uh, no, I, I find myself yelling at the TV, especially with the political programs. I end, my, I end up yelling at the TV all the time. It's like, well, why do you do that, Jim? Well, I, because I, you know, I, I was involved in politics, local politics, national politics, helping out on uh, political campaigns on the uh, national level, presidential campaigns. And we always kicked ourselves as to why, you know, why are we, uh, you know, they're saying, not saying the right thing or that could have been said better or that, hey, that, that's, not a, that's not a fair statement, that sort of thing. So what ended up happening was I went and created the program, and this is where we are tonight. And we are at program number 300. Last program in 2023, we got tied up with stuff this week. End of the year, clients can't call, hey, Jim, I need this done by the end of the year. We want to hit the ground running for uh, January uh 2024, and I, it's hard to even conceptualize that issue, is uh, 2024. And someone told me I need to handle the microphone closer to my face. Uh, you know, they will work on getting a different microphone here. Uh, you know, it's just very upsetting here uh, what happened with Ian. Uh, apparently, uh, and this goes to show you the cruelty that's often out there in this world. People, it wasn't announced right away what he died from, and it still hasn't been announced, just in general, uh, was that he had a genetic uh, illness that had to do with the liver. And it was undiagnosed. Uh, he uh, was non-alcohol related, no alcohol, non-alcohol related, because usually people think, hey, uh, you know, liver issues, you have an alcohol issue, or you're eating mushrooms that you shouldn't have. And that's essentially it uh, with him. He had a non-alcohol-related liver issue. He was uh, placed on the donor list for a liver transplant, and he ended up uh, not, uh, not uh, uh, surviving. And uh, our hearts, our thoughts, our prayers go out with to his family. But let's remember something here. Let's not be sad over him dying. Let's be happy that we got to know him on this show. <coughs> Pardon me. If you're a listener to the show, he had a great life. Started out in radio, became a deacon in the Presbyterian Church, became a, got his PhD, became a professor, inspired people at University of Kansas where he taught uh, at the, uh, I believe it was the Walter Conkright uh, School of Journalism, and uh, he's going to be missed. Some of the highlights of the shows that he had and I used to torment my uh, in-laws a little bit, uh, where he had what I have, what a lot of us have is uh, tinnitus. And he was he left coast to coast AM for a number of years. And uh, in 2013, this was he left, and he had a couple of best of shows that he wanted to revisit. One of them was Smiley Face Killer, and uh, that was a serial killer that's yet to be the cases have yet to be solved. And one of them was at a park. Uh, that my in-laws frequented up in uh, Kingston, New York. So I used to torment them a little bit. Did you hear about the smiley face killer, blah, blah, blah? Not to make a joke out of a murder, but, uh, you know, hey, watch out out there. And we, uh, they were like, we didn't hear about this. I said, well, I heard about it on the Punnett Coast to Coast Dam. Pretty much take it to the bank. One of them was a guy who was reincarnated as a human, but he was a horse. That was another uh, classic program of his. And everybody got a good laugh out of it. Uh, guy thinks he's a horse. K 
kept him on for, you know, had him on for like two hours, three hours talking about that. And what happened was I had, how did I get on? Uh, I had uh, released uh, a one minute video, I believe it was on Twitter, uh, that on East Palestine uh, uh, train disaster. And I said, what people have to ask on this stuff? Is the area safe? What do you, right? What are you basing that on? Right? What are you basing that on? And the third one is, you know, how did you determine this? Now, we're, now did you do air sampling? That usually makes them feel very uncomfortable. And then it's, we're, well, were you sampling? You know, what's there? And all that other stuff. And the last thing is, did you actually sample for what was there? That is normally, pardon me, uh, that is normally where people fail. Where you say, oh, yeah, everything is safe. Everything is safe. But then, well, did you actually sample? What are you basing that on? That gets very, very uncomfortable for people when they have that. So, and so real simple, all right? Is it safe? No, what's there? What are you basing that safety thing on, right? And did you actually sample for that or run a calculation, something? Usually government fails on the last one. Any type of emergency responder does. And I, I've tried this out multiple times uh, where I was at places where there were, no, not at working, but as a member of the public. I start asking these questions and the people start running away from you. They don't want to answer those questions. Uh, one of them was BP, right, during the uh, BP oil spill. Another one was at another oil spill in New Orleans. I asked that. I was there on vacation. And, uh, you know, that's how it is. So what happened was he got a hold of that program. And I got a phone call from the producers. Said, hey, want to be on uh, Friday? I believe it was a Saturday night for two hours. We had a subsequent updates on other railroad incidents. So uh, rest in peace, Ian. Uh, I would have liked to uh, meet you in person, but that was not possible. And I'm looking forward to uh, meeting you one day in heaven. So I have uh, right here. And we're going to cut to commercial break. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. OSHA Recordables, catastrophic losses, environmental disasters. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Pozel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy. Yes, I am your father, Jessica. All right. Uh, so to honor Ian Punnett, we're going to do, uh, let me pull up the tab here. This too many things open at one time on the computer, and hopefully I did not exit out of everything. We're going to do an update on the East Palestine, Ohio uh, train disaster in honor of Ian here, since and we'll probably redo this also. And wouldn't you know it, 
I apparently exited out of that. So uh, give me a second here. I'm going to go and play another commercial. And is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Pozel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. So I'm going to do a uh, read off of here. This is from East Palestine, Ohio, the train derailment here. Uh, let me share. All right. So uh, here I have, and let me make sure it's this uh, playing correctly here. For some reason, it's streaming, but okay, here we go. I don't understand some of this sometimes, how this technology works. Uh, I'm sharing screen here uh, so you folks can, at home can see this. Look at this update, December 22nd, 2023. This is from a week ago. Uh, the on-site water treatment system continues to be shut down temporarily due to maintenance and operational adjustments and is expected to be back online following the upcoming holiday break. Previously treated wastewater and untreated wastewater continue to be shipped off-site. Norfolk Southern continues winterization of equipment on the nor on the on-site wastewater treatment facility. So apparently they're uh, generating a lot of wastewater here uh, for whatever they're treating here. The heating systems in the big blue tanks and other effluent tanks containing treated non-hazardous liquid may cause some visible water vapor. This water vapor does not pose any health risks. A large tent-like structure has been installed over the top of the wastewater treatment system to keep the system operational in colder temperatures. Because we have a thing called winter, and even though it's been pretty mild, a lot of this stuff, uh, when you're dealing with water, with water treatment systems, has to be kept above uh, the freezing mark. So typically on all of these jobs, they'll put things inside of tents. Uh, they may build temporary uh, steel buildings, things of that nature, uh, Quonset hunts, to try to uh, keep things heated here so work continues in the underground culverts in east palestine or palestine the culvert uh running underneath the municipal building was finished last week the final culvert to be cleaned out is being assessed to ensure the work can be safely done to, to the length field work to implement going on and on and on and they're doing confirmatory sampling the epl epa leading the unified command eptd uh, emergency uh, response has approved the work plan for the next phase of the cleanup. The soil characterization work plan details the final comprehensive sampling as the cleanup enters last stages of excavation. Sampling began this week and is intended to be a double check to ensure that the cleanup has been fully successful and that no contamination has spread to, to response activities. Uh, 2,500 samples will be collected as part of this plan. So essentially what's going on is they've removed all of the stuff that's visually contaminated. And I imagine, I don't, I'm not involved with this and I haven't been following this extremely closely, but normally when you do a sample here, when you do an excavation, you're going to go th with real-time air monitoring uh, uh, machines, primarily photo ionization detectors, PIDs, or FIDs, which are flame ionization detectors. And you're going to go and you're going to clean up Everything and you're going to be no visually seeing things. You're going to be screening things with a one of these machines, and it's an air uh, sampling machine, and it measures volatile organic compounds in the air. Now, a couple of ways you could do this in the field. They put the samples inside of containers, heat up the containers, and they take what is called a headspace. 
uh, things. So in this can of soda here, the seltzer water, for example, we have a, it's about half full, has a head space, and they cover the top of it. What they do is they put the flame ionization detector probe or PID probe on the top, and just because it's contained and you have it off-gassing into here, now you're able to determine whether there is contamination or potential contamination. Now, the problem with the field air sampling equipment is that it is more qualitative than quantitative, meaning it's going to give you an idea. Uh, so if it's measuring for, let's say, volatile organic compounds, VOCs, it's going to be measuring for all volatile organic compounds. And it's only going to be uh, what that meter is set up to do because you have a thing called ionization potential, and every chemical that's volatile has a different ionization potential if it's organic, and some have it so high that you can't measure it with a photon ionization detector or flame ionization detector. It's out of the uh, technology, out of the sampling uh, technique above the method detection limit, that sort of thing. So what ends up happening is... uh, if you get readings off of it, and like we're not talking little tiny blips on the screen, we're talking massive readings, then you know you haven't gotten any of the contamination, and then you have to go in and start digging. Now, ionization potential is the uh, electron voltage that something uh, uh, is able to ionize, right? And I'm not going to go into exactly what that is because I'll get comments and uh, like I always do with this and now it's like well you know it's a nightmare but anyway you end up that's how you screen soils in the field so you're going to take soil you're going to put it into a container and then you're going to take a headspace reading you may heat up the soil somehow and get a headspace reading or it could be visual it could be odor it could be not that i recommend you smell in hazardous material but i'm you know this is what goes on in the field and then when you get down to where it's not reading anything, now you say, okay, I think we are done. So then you get confirmatory samples you collect. Send them out to a third-party lab. And what happens is you get sample results back. Then you go and you're, uh, if it's dirty, you continue to excavate. If it's clean, you backfill everything with certified clean fill uh, on that. Now, you're going to laugh over this. I was on a job where this happened, where they uh, backfilled everything, and they got the material from a quarry, and they had volatile organic compounds in the uh, uh, original site. It was uh, what we call here in New Jersey historic fill, and what that is, it could be anything. Right, it's non legally non hazardous, but it could be anything because they backfilled the swamps of New Jersey in and around a giant stadium on Route 46 with everything, right? Everything that they got. So it could be anything. And what ended up happening was they uh, backfilled the uh, they backfilled the area with radioactive material. So they cleaned up one thing, volatile organic compounds, they backfilled it with, and heavy metals, they backfilled it with low-level radioactive material inadvertently from a quarry up in North Jersey. Uh, And what's funny is that they were able, based on the chemical profile or the profile and the radiation levels, they were able to determine which quarry it came from, and they got a bill. Right. So uh, one of our listeners here who works with me there got a really big kick out of it. He was we were no, he was laughing about it on here. So uh, here we have the full characterization work plan. Let's click on that. So let's see what we have. It's rather comprehensive. So the primary investigation will be both tracks and the center line between the tracks. Locations impacted by the derailment, that's where they're going to be sampling, where there was direct contract between soil and cars carrying hazardous materials during the wrecking and scrapping operations. Also includes ditches that may have conveyed spill product or firefighting water. 
locations where waste containers and cleanup equipment were staged, locations in the derailment zone where there is no apparent impact but need to be checked because they are in between locations that are currently being cleaned up, and areas not currently identified if additional impacts are discovered. The EPA will post confirmation sampling results on this website as soon as they become available. And let's see here. This is an extensive document here. Uh, full disclosure here, uh, the company I used to work for worked uh, was bought by Arcadis. So full disclosure here. And we're going to scroll down. Uh, good thing. If you're interested, just go to the EPA website, and it's all there, East Palace and train derailment. Uh, that's a rather comprehensive data, and we have everything else here. I mean, if you know a graduate student or somebody in high school uh, that wants to do a project, a science project on this, this is probably a good one. We had some data analysts that are fr uh, friends of our uh, program here looking into some of this stuff here. And let's look up the uh, uh, newsletter. And they're saying uh, there was no... Last year, crews finished the qualitative sheen assessment in Leslie and Sulphur Runs. Every 25 feet, the creek rev was to serve to look for any visible sheen. If observed, it was qualitative, qualitatively graded on a 0 to 3-point scale. Crews photo-documented the sheen and sampled the sheen in nearby sediment where sheens were heavy or moderate. More than 821 locations were assessed in Sulphur and Leslie Runs. And uh, EPA will use that information to see what's there. So you see the sheens, if you can see it at home. Last week, crews completed assessments on most culverts under East Palestine to prepare for a cleanout. Uh, no evidence of derailment-related chemicals were detected in air samples during the excavations. Three of the culverts have been cleaned, including removal of sediment and debris, and a fourth is nearing completion. Uh, and they have on-site wastewater treatment uh, system here uh, set up. And they basically shut down for Christmas. So uh, that's what's going on uh, with that. So uh, that's what we have. We're going to take another break. And we're going to go to our regular OSHA and EPA news. Have you listened or watched uh, the Safety War Show? It does stream live on, on the radio and um, on the streamer emers that we have. So if you have not taken a listen to Jim Bozel and what the hell he's doing every evening with uh, Safety Wars, I would, I would strongly encourage you to... Um, to take a view or take a listen, um, whichever option is available for you, and take a listen to what the hell he has going on. Uh, it's definitely, it will take some deep dives and some information that you might be interested in. This is Safety Wars, broadcasting to our brothers and sisters in the occupied territory of behavior-based safety. Get out your secret decoder ring. Here is your nightly message. How you respond to failure matters. How you respond to failure matters. In a world where danger lurks in every corner, one man stands as a beacon of hope. Jim Polzel, a veteran safety expert with over three decades of experience, now bringing his knowledge to you with Safety Wars. Engaging, informative, and always relevant, that's Safety Wars. Join a safety revolution with Safety Wars, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts and videos. So uh, here we go. For whatever reason, OSHA... It's not updating their press releases uh, this week, probably because of the holiday. However, 
Department of Labor is. Go figure. Here we have a news release. Illinois contractor continues to expose construction workers to deadly fall hazards. Employees have served in danger twice within the month in a subdivision. And uh, again, uh, let me mention here. Uh, the Everyone's innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. These things are uh, often litigated. Uh, negotiated, vacated, and everything else. So this is not the final thing on here. And everyone's innocent until proven guilty here. So I'm only going by what's on the press releases here from OSHA and the Department of Labor. Uh, I cannot say whether it's accurate, inaccurate, fair, unfair. Or these are just the uh, press releases. Twice within a month, an Illinois roofing contractor cited previously more than 20 times for violating federal workplace safety regulations was again found exposing employees to falls as they did residential framework on houses under construction in Savoy. And let's go here. We, they issued $278,000 in penalties. So let's see where we're at here. And I'm scrolling through. Citation one item one, type of violation serious. 29 CFR, and this is a new one for us here. They normally don't uh, cite, we normally not in these press releases. Uh, 29 CFR, 1926, construction, 1051. Stairways or ladders are not provided at all personal points of access where there was a break in elevation of 19 inches or more, and no ramp, runway, slope, embankment, or personal hoist was provided. On or about June 26, 2023, and the company had employees exposed to fall hazards while climbing down from the roof through a second-story floor via the second-story interior walls while framing on a residential construction site. 4900, uh, $4,911. Had to be abated by today, guys. Uh, citation to item one, willful serious. And this is a fall protection. So uh, what it comes down to is that they were greater than 10 feet without fall protection while framing on a residential roof. Uh, the, the company was previously cited for this in January 13th, 2023. Uh, and also October 4th, 2022, last year. And August 16th and on March 5th of 2021. August 16th, 2022. And March 5th, 2021. And December 11th, 2018. So that's five years. In five years, they were, right? Willful. Proposed penalties, $85,942 on that one. And there's more. Here we have one here. Going down. I'm scrolling through this on the, no, this is all shared screen. Here we have 2019-26.502. Locking type snap hooks were not designed and used to prevent disengagement on the snap hook. Right? Uh, on or about July 26, 2023, the company had two employees exposed to fall hazards greater than 10 feet without fall protection due to the snap hooks on their lanyards not being sized large enough to make a connection with the lumber so that it would prevent snap hooks from disengaging in the event of a fall on a residential construction site. Now, what this is, is, right, I'm going to do another video on here with this, right, in the very near future. Got big plans for 2024, if we can make it happen. So the snap hooks were basically left open when they were, is how I'm interpreting this here. This is an inference I'm drawing. Were attached, so you have the small pelican hooks and the large ones, the snap hooks. 
the, they did not fully close when they attached to something. They were probably uh, uh, wide open. That's how it, how it is there. How much does those uh, land routes cost? A hell of a lot less than $6,875 is the answer. Citation one, item two. Uh, stairways or ladders are not provided, right, again. Uh, blah, blah, blah. They were climbing down from rafters by hanging from the rafters and dropping to a step ladder several feet below on a residential thing. Uh, construction, $4,911. Citation one, item three. Uh, the top or top step of a step ladder was used as a step, $3,929. Citation two, item one, willful. Each employee on a scaffold, not otherwise specified, blah, 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 of the section more than 10 feet above a lower level was not protected by falls, by the use of personal fall arrest systems or guardrail systems. So uh, this was a... Multiple, right? They, they recited on this one, two, three other times, $85,000 plus fine. My interpretation of this is that they built a scaffold and the working surface of the scaffold did not have a top rail, mid rail, and a tow board, right? This violation recently, uh, when an employee was exposed to a fall hazard without fall protection while working from a supported scaffold. Oh, it gets better than this. Than what I think. They're working from a supported scaffold, which was lifted by a class seven forklift, a rough terrain forklift, possibly a lull, a lull, right? On a resident. So they put the scaffolding on a forklift and raise it up. Great. And probably, usually, uh, I, my inference was wrong here. I'll admit it. But often what they cite this one for is from not having the working level as a top rail, mid rail, and a tow board. $85,942. Citation to item two, willful serious. Again, uh... No fall protection greater than six feet, $85,942. For a grand total of $187,599. I don't know what to say here. They're willful, they're willful, right, at this point. Here we have, in Wheeling, West Virginia, U.S. Department of Labor reached a settlement agreement that affirms willful violations and 700 and $30,000 penalty against severe violator, Ohio roofing contractor. And do they have a link? Here you go. The U.S. Department of Labor has reached a settlement agreement to resolve litigation following a March 2022 investigation at the work site in Wheeling that resulted in a dozen citations issued against an Ohio-based contractor with an extensive history of exposing workers to deadly falls. The settlement agreement between the departments OSHA and um, the company affirms 12 citations issued by OSHA, six egregious willful, five repeat, and one serious, and the corresponding $730,000 in penalties the company must pay along with enhanced compliance measures. The citations followed an inspection on March 29, 2022. Uh, received OSHA after OSHA received a complaint that alleged the company did not provide Fall protection to workers replacing a roof top of a two-story office building in Wheeling. OSHA signed the contractor for failing to ensure the use of fall protection and safety glasses, allowing unsafe use of portable ladders and failing to provide training to employees on fall hazards. You know, they could have called us up here, 845-269-5772, and we could have supplied this to them. As part of the settlement, they're hiring a safety consultant, make all... Improvements recommended in their report and accept, and, right, and they have to submit a plan to OSHA, accept unannounced monthly audits conducted by the safety consultant at the company's work sites and written reports submitted to the employer, which the employer must retain and inform OSHA of its current and future work sites and allow entry for investigators. And they shall not oppose the entry of a uh, of Section 11B order of enforcement. Okay, uh, 
The company is based in Millersburg, Ohio. It is a roofing siding and siding contractor that works throughout Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Press release was yesterday on the 28th. Let's see what this is. So this is the original one here. Uh, again, this is one that people uh, don't really understand. I don't know why. It's a simple one. But usually in these situations where there's willful violations, things of that nature, you get uh, cited for not having a, and, and this is construction, you get cited for not having a competent person on site. And this is 19, 1926.20. The employer does not initiate a maintained program which so provided for frequent and regular inspections of the job site, materials and equipment to be made by a competent person. That means someone who is able to inspect the job site, assess hazards, and able to correct them. I got hired many years ago as a competent person. I get onto the job. I said, you got to fix this, 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 and this. They said, we ain't doing it. Guess what? then I'm not the competent person because I don't have the authority or the ability to fix things because you told me, because you gave me the New Jersey salute or displayed the state bird to me. All right. The employer does not maintain programs which require the frequent and regular inspections in the job site. Those have to be done in writing, by the way. Uh, the material and equipment by a competent person got to be done in writing. Uh, the employer did not conduct inspections in the work site or equipment for employees performing roofing work on a steep roof, exposing the uh, employees to fall and struck by hazards. Again, gotta have a gotta have a, that was fourteen thousand dollars. Citation two, item one, type of uh, violation, willful, serious. No fall protection. Citation of one hundred and forty-five thousand dollars. Citation to item three, no guardrail systems, no tow boards, no safety net systems, fall, no fall protection, no nothing. They were exposed from fall of 18 to 28 feet, $145,027. Citation to item four, same deal. They got them for every employee, it sounds like. Each employee on a steep had to have on a, right, something. $145,000. Citation two, item four. All right, that was another one. Citation two, item five, willful serious. No fall protection for another employee. All right. $145,027. Let me flip through this again here. I'm sorry if you're watching and you're getting cars and you're getting motion sickness here. But is this all on the same date? That's my question. No, it's on different dates. No, it says March 29th. No, March 29th, but it was a repeat. Willful. March 29th. Okay, so great. They whacked them for basically every employee, $145,000. Going on. Citation three, item one. Employer, uh, the employer does not ensure uh, each affected employee uses eye or face protection. $56,980. Really? For a $2 pair of safety glasses? Uh, I don't really... Get it. They were using a nail gun here. $56,980. Citation 3, item 2A. No training program for employees exposed to fall hazards. I don't know how they come up with this, these numbers. $80,000. All 
basically just shy of that. Citations read item 2B. The employer does not retrain effect employees who already have been trained when inadequacies and adequacies in an effect employee's use of fall protection systems or equipment indicate that an employee has not retained the requisite understanding or skill required by paragraph A. The employer does not ensure that previously trained employees are retrained when inadequacies. So, uh, blah, blah, blah. This violation was observed March 29th. Okay. Uh, so apparently they had, they were able to, and I'm, uh, no, apparently and this is $0 employees were trained. They might've had documentation, but they weren't following their training. So they got cited for it. Citation three, item three, eight violation, uh, repeat serious. No, no, no. The ladders weren't big enough. They have to extend three foot above their landing. How much was that? $68,371. Wow. Here we have the employer does not provide retraining for each employee as necessary so the employee maintains the understanding and knowledge required through compliance with this section. And that's uh, 1926.10, which, uh, 1926.10.60, which has to do with ladders. Again, what do they say? Well, you trained them. They said, hey, uh, this is often what happens. I'm not sure about this, but they say, hey, we trained them. We told them they just don't do it, and we're not going to enforce the rules. Well, they were cited for $0, but I tell you what, they tried to run with the uh, compliance person, apparently. Um, allegedly, apparently, I'm drawing another inference. It could be right, could be wrong. That... And this is what happened. Hey, we told these people to do this, and we didn't do it. No, that's the way it is. Well, guess what happens? Well, oh, then you know you have a problem with the employees, and you're not uh, correcting it? Well, then it's on you, Mr. Employer. The employer does not verify compliance. This is 1926-503. No training records. Again, no training records, $455. It's a repeat. So proposed was $1,090,231. And they were able to contest this, I'm betting. And I, they had a, an attorney that cost, probably cost $300,000 on the end of this uh, for they, down to $730,000. Better than well, almost 1.1 mil, but... Still a lot of money. How much work are they going to have to do to make up for that? This is a somewhat local story here. And this is a general industry thing here. And uh, this is 32 serious violations. Wow. And this is uh, the Oakland Manufacturing Company, June 2023. Uh, this is uh, less than 20 minutes away from where I'm broadcasting here. And here we are. Uh, OSHA inspectors found a, a company failed to do the following. One, make sure to keep walking working services free of hazards and install guardrails at the proper height. Keep exit routes free and unobstructed and post exit signs correctly. Properly train workers and make sure they use personal protective equipment. Provide machine guards, store flammable liquid safely, perform a workplace hazard assessment, establish, I usually do that in January, so give me a call. Uh, establish written hazard communication respiratory programs. Provide a medical evaluation to determine if an employee could use a respirator safely, that's 1910-134, and SDSs, that's 1910-1200, on here. So... Let's go through here. $275,000 in violations. Okay. Citation one, item one, serious. It was a general duty clause violation. 
right? Uh, a red metal warehouse box warehouse made box was utilized to lift up personnel on a forklift for different tasks for over a several year period. This operation was last observed on uh, July 4th. Among other things, one feasible means to follow again, then uh, they should have had a man lift. So what they did was they uh, had a job made container is what it looks like and raised people up and down on that, uh, on a forklift. I always, I tell you what, the company that is named after a river in South America sells metal cages for forklifts for using as a man lift. I never, ever recommend those, ever. Unless you have uh, a lot of insurance, number one. Number two, it's been signed off by the manufacturer. Number three, it's been signed off by an engineer and everything is all copacetic. That never happens, by the way. I would, uh, now, how much do you trust that forklift operator? You know, not to kill you. That's a question. I've seen this, and I, again, I worked my way through college in a warehouse, so I've seen this happen all the time. Again, uh, da, da, da. blocked uh, stair, uh, blocked uh, area, 9,000 blocked the walkway. No guardrails on a walking working surfaces, 9,300. Exit routes have to be kept unobstructed. I mean, this is all little tiny things. Is there anything real big? No uh, training on a uh, powered industrial truck. That's a forklift. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. I don't know. I don't even know what to say at this point with this. Let's take a little pause here with this, and we'll go on from there. Okay. Have you listened or watched uh, the Safety War Show? It does stream live on on the radio and um, on the streamer emers that we have. So if you have not taken a listen to Jim Bozel and what the hell he's doing every evening with uh, Safety Wars, I would I would strongly encourage you to um to take a view or take a listen, um, whichever option is available for you, and take a listen to what the hell he has going on. Uh, it's definitely, it will take some deep dives and some information that you might be interested in. In an unpredictable world, one voice rises above the chaos. Meet Jim Pozel, a seasoned safety expert who's navigated through some of the most dangerous scenarios from anthrax, explosive cleanups, disasters, and numerous environmental cleanups, and lived to tell the tale. Now, he's bringing his wealth of knowledge, insights, and experiences to you through Safety Wars. From workplace hazards to the hidden dangers in your own home, Jim covers it all. With his engaging storytelling and expert analysis, Safety Wars isn't just a podcast. It's your guide to a safer world. Join Jim Polzel and become part of the Safety Wars Revolution. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts and videos. Safety Wars. Your safety is our mission. All right, so... We're going to finish up with one of our other big stories. And uh, this is a shout out to Ian again, uh, Punnett. Uh, he uh, had high uh, compliments on our coverage of the whole Alec Baldwin and Rust situation. Let's remember here. Uh, no, let's, uh, there's a lot that goes on here. You know, you can go and look back at our old programs here. And there's a lot going on here with that Alec Baldwin uh, with this that has to do with uh, likability. Now, a lot of people don't like him. And if you're going to be involved in a very public legal case and people don't like you, you're not going to have good coverage uh, with this, right? And it's, 
No, that that's basically it. I, I don't have a problem with Alec Baldwin. I think this is a tragedy, especially for the uh, uh, victim in this, uh, uh, in this, and the people injured with this. Uh, here, it does not. Uh, I mean, with Helena Hutchins, the person was was killed here. Not a laughing matter. I don't think the uh, he intended to do this or anything else. We're going to have to let this uh, uh, play out here. But this is from about a month ago. New footage of Alec Baldwin firing a prop gun, and this is all for Fox News, on the set of Rust has been released as prosecutors consider recharging the actor in the fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Baldwin can be heard telling crew members to move out of the path of the gun in the video. The footage was reportedly taken before Hutchins was fatally shot on October 21st, 2021. Uh, now, wait a second, I'm not, I'm going to shoot right, but don't, but do you mind going to the other side of the camera? I don't want to shoot toward you. At another point, Baldwin seems concerned for the safety of whoever is behind the camera saying, I don't know why you're going up the hills and all, all this other, you're going to break your leaping neck. Later in the clip, a woman can be heard saying, everyone doesn't need to be right here in the path of the gun. Could you please move? A representative for Baldwin did not immediately respond to Fox Digital's request for a comment. Again, uh, special pro prosecutors revealed that they would ask grand jury to decide if Baldwin should face criminal charges yet again nearly two years after Hutchins' death. After extensive investigation, additional facts have come to light that we believe show Mr. Baldwin has criminal culpability, according to uh, special prosecutor Carrie Morrissey Mor and Jason Lewis. I don't know, uh, with this. I mean, this is a tragedy here with this and continues to hurt everybody. This was from last week. All Alec Baldwin unluckily, unlikely to testify against Russ Armour, Hannah Gutierrez Reed. Uh, actor Alec Baldwin is not expected to testify against Russ Armour, Hannah Gutierrez Reed when her trial begins in February 2024. We'll be following that on this show. The rookie armorer is faced with two counts of involuntary manslaughter and one charge of tampering with evidence in connection with the October 2021 death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, Alec Baldwin, uh, right? So uh, we'll be following that. That's the last update. So uh, that's it for live programs uh, on Safety FM for 2023. Uh, we hope to be back, and we will be back uh, in... Uh, 2024 and let's see let me make sure we have everything going here with, with us and good night everybody and a happy new year and happy holidays The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.